Okay, well, let's pray. Father, this evening we, we, we've gathered. The Scripture says in Hebrews, don't forsake the assembling together as some are in the habit of doing. And so we've gathered and we <clears throat> believe that there's a purpose behind our gathering. And while we enjoy the fruits of the community of Christ, like fellowship with one another and just encouraging each other, talking, sharing, challenging one another, supporting one another, yet we came to worship you. And so from this point forward in our service, it's about you. It's the worship of God through the study of His Word. There's so many ways that we can worship. This is one of the key ways for coming into deeper understanding of who God is so that we might enjoy the relationship that you have given us. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who lives in us, who every day, every hour, every second is conforming us to the image of Jesus if we allow him. And we thank you that, God, you didn't just save us, but you have kept us. And you're going to keep us until the day that Christ Jesus returns and we go to spend eternity with you. And we're just thankful, so thankful that we have the promises of God to stand on, the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of that which is promised and is coming. And we give you praise and glory for it. Tonight, strengthen us that we might be even more effective in our witness for Christ and in our application of God's Word in a fallen world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, we're going to be looking tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 7. I'd like to just share for a second, give you a little context to what we're going to be studying. Um, last week, you saw where the Philistines uh, returned the ark, a very miraculous way. There's nobody that could doubt that God was in it, uh, the way they, the way they, the Philistines set it up was they wanted to make sure it was in fact God that uh, had brought the tumors and the, the mice that took over the whole Philistine land. And uh, so they, they put, the, they put the, the ark on a, a new cart and connected it to some, some cows that uh, were, were actually nursing calves and, uh, and didn't, had never been yoked before. They had never been controlled by a yoke. They didn't understand that. And in that situation, a cow would probably just stand there, wouldn't do anything. And the fact that they had uh, calves that were bellowing, they probably would have made their way towards the calves, if anything, if they did move. They tried to put up everything they could in opposition to the cows taking the ark back towards uh, uh, the land of, of Israel. And that's exactly what the cows did. I mean, they didn't even hesitate. They took off and uh, made their way all the way back and uh, delivered the, the calves about uh, probably about uh, uh, 15 miles west of Jerusalem in, uh, at the house of, of Abinadab in Kiriath-Jerim. And uh, interestingly, uh, that, that area had once belonged to the Philistines, but God had already recovered that for, for Israel. Abinadab was a Levite, and he consecrated, he didn't, the Levites 
uh, consecrated his son to be, I guess, a fill-in priest, so to speak. Um, and so he was the one who would supervise or steward the, the, the ark while it was there with him. It was not taken back to Shiloh. It was not taken to a temple or tabernacle. It was brought to a man's house. But this was a Levitical, uh, he's part of the Levitical tribe, so they probably had some type of a, a sh not a shrine, but something that's like that for the ark to be kept in. And his son would then, uh, who was consecrated, would oversee that. Now, verse 1 in chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Ben-Benadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, or from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now there's a lot in that. Let's try to break it down. First of all, let's look at the last portion. All the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. There's a good reason for Israel to lament, by the way. I mean, if you think about it, they had, they had taken the ark out into the battlefield thinking that would surely bring victory, and it brought the opposite. It was a complete whitewashing by the Philistines. The Philistines captured the ark. Eli died because he heard that his sons uh, had been killed in battle and the ark had been taken. Uh, nothing good came out of that. Now, and ha as had been for the last few decades, the Philistines ruled uh, they were almost like in submission to the Philistines. And so there were many reasons why there was a lament going on among Israel. And, and this just brought it home. They were not right with God. That's the bottom line. Israel was not right with God. Uh, likewise, God will use pain and trials like the Israelites had in order to get them to turn back to Him. Uh, is that not true in our lives, that God uses uh, trials? He uses COVID. He uses uh, setbacks, uh, economic setbacks, uh, physical setbacks. He uses anything and everything. And some of it, if we're honest theologically, God actually does. God doesn't just use things. Sometimes He is using a natural disaster. But sometimes he orders things up. And especially in the Old Testament, we see through the book of Judges many examples of God setting the enemy against Israel and, and, and to bring them under submission as a way of getting them to turn back to the Lord. And so uh, they had good reason to lament. Their cities were in ruins. Their armies were defeated. They were under the Philistine domination all because they were not right with God, and God used it. Now, this 20-year period that it speaks of in our text would have occurred before David's reign. And uh, we know that Saul reigned about 40 years. Um, so now, there were issues with that, with Saul, but uh, Saul is never associated with the Ark of the Covenant, interestingly. Uh, also, let me give you another one. Neither is Samuel. Even though we're hearing a lot about Samuel right now, who, by the way, is both the judge and the, the prophet. 
of God. But never do we hear Samuel giving any instruction or orders regarding the Ark of the Covenant. It's almost as if Samuel has been given this role of spiritual leadership, but really dealing with the inward elements of the people. In other words, God commanded him to preach in such a way and teach and lead to get heart change, not worrying about the external. So Samuel didn't focus on the outward expression of God's presence. He was trying to get the people to return to God out of their, God, their false gods and idol worship. So that's just an, a couple of interesting points here. But this 20 years, it would have been, uh, interestingly, it would have happened uh, uh, before David's reign because when David became king, what did he do? He initiated getting the ark brought back to Jerusalem. And, of course, he, he failed in his first attempt. And then in the second attempt, he was successful. And in fact, let's turn to that if we can. Let's jump ahead. Uh, this would be at least 20 years later, uh, but it would have to be longer because Saul ruled for 40. Uh, so let's look ahead if we can and go to, uh, let's see, 1 Samuel. Uh, if you go to chapter 6, 1 Samuel chapter 6, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We've already studied 1 Samuel chapter 6. Scott covered that last week, didn't he? Did a great job. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And let's just pick up this story. This is a powerful story. Again, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence, the holiness, and the graciousness of God. And, and this is a great story that really illustrates the holiness of God. So David now is king, and he's chosen some men of Israel uh, to go with him, about 30,000 men, along with all the people who wanted to come along, and they were going to bring the ark of God uh, back up to uh, the, the, the Jerusalem. And interestingly, it even speaks here, verse, verse 3, and they, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. Remember, we just read about Abinadab, that that's where the cart was taken when it was returned to Kiriath-Jerim. And now they're going down there to the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill, and, but the names are different. Back in 1 Samuel, uh, his son's name was Eleazar, who became the priest, right, who was consecrated to care for the ark. Now, some 30, 40 years later, uh, it speaks of two other sons. And it, it's likely that these are grandsons because we don't see anything, we don't hear anything else about Abinadab himself or Eliezer, his son. So these are probably grandsons. And interestingly, it says, and Uzzah and Ahio, I wouldn't say Ohio, I wouldn't put that on Ohio. Okay, uh, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Let me just say this about this Levitical tribe and, uh, of Abinadab. Uh, they, they, were, they would have been Kohathites in the, in the tribe of Levi, uh, a particular uh, sect or group called Kohathites. 
their responsibility back in Deuteronomy, as God laid out the instructions for the care of and the, the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant, was that the Kohathites would be the ones who would move the Ark. Uh, they were given explicit instructions, and, and they had to follow them closely. And that was their role. They, were, they handled the instruments and the utensils and the supplies of the temple or the tabernacle when they would move it back with Moses in the Old Testament. So these are the folks who have come along through that, that bloodline, and they know something about hauling the, the ark. Interestingly, they attempt to haul the ark in a similar way that the Philistines brought the ark or returned the ark back to Israel. The Philistines used cows. Uh, the Kohathites here are going to use, and David, David's signing off on it, they're going to use um, oxen. They're going to put the cart on an ox, on, on a cart, or put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. Nowhere in Scripture did God ever give instruction that the Ark of the Covenant would be moved in that fashion. There were staves that you would hold on the sides of the Ark, and that's how you would transfer the Ark. So they're already out of the gate as, as David is ordering his men, and they're all excited. They've got the, all the instruments. They're going to have this incredible parade with great music and return the Ark back to Jerusalem. But they start right out with uh, an ox cart, an oxen that are pulling it. And so let's go further and look here. It says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines, castanets, and, uh, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, one of the sons of Abinadab, a Levite, put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. Why? For the oxen stumbled. So you, when you look at this on the surface, absolutely he's trying to stabilize the ark. The oxen has stumbled. The ark potentially is going to slide off of the oxen cart and into the mud or the dirt, whatever, and he's trying to stabilize it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. He touched the ark of the covenant, symbolic of the presence and the holiness of God. They have already mismanaged transporting the ark, the ark of the covenant. And now Uzzah, thinking that somehow he's doing a good thing, reaches out, not realizing, not thinking through what God had commanded in Deuteronomy. And, and he's thinking, you say, well, he was doing a good thing. He assumed that his hand was cleaner than the dirt or the mud on the ground. But the dirt and the mud have never sinned against the Lord. When the sun comes out, the dirt dries out. 
the mud cake, it turns into cake. When the rains flow, it turns back into mud. It softens. The earth obeys the Lord. It would have been better had Uzzah allowed the Ark of the Covenant to fall into the mud than for him to put his hand on it. Because Uzzah, like us, is a sinner. Uzzah might just be sitting in your chair tonight. Things that we touch that we are not to touch. We show disrespect to God by maybe how we worship because now we've moved away from the purity of worship, keeping our focus on Him, and we've gotten sidetracked by, I've got to have this kind of song. I've got to have this kind of preacher. I've got to... And all of a sudden, here we are doing things in our own way, and we think we're doing it for the right reason. God, Jesus said, if, if you don't praise me, if you don't put me first, if you don't worship me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then the rocks will cry out in worship. Inanimate objects have not sinned. They're doing exactly as their Creator commanded. You and I are the sinners. And we can presume upon the holiness of God and not even know it. Now listen, I'm not talking in, in such a way as to leave you with this idea that somehow we're in this works righteous relationship with God. Do, don't do. Do, don't do. Do, don't do. Check the list. Don't do these. No, no, no. That's not what this is about. This is about a Christian under the love and the steadfast love of Christ who died on the cross for their sins, a Christian who never stops recognizing the holiness of their God and worshiping, worshiping Him as holy. That we don't presume upon God. It's one thing to know that we have intimate relationship with Him. The Scripture says you can say to Him, Abba, Father, Daddy. That's the intimate relationship. It's like that. But don't disrespect God in your worship. Don't disrespect God in your prayer life. Don't start... I, I had somebody uh, who... Well, had several people, not just one. I've had several people say to me, uh, they, they call him Papa. I don't know if it's because of the book, The Shack, that they read, and they liked the fact that God was referred to as Papa, but, but that's not his name. They don't know it, so I'm not, dis I'm not trying to condemn here. I'm saying that to the degree that we know God, we will honor and respect Him as God. And He is holy. God is just as holy right now tonight as He was when He struck Uzzah dead. He, he's just as holy tonight as when He struck Aaron's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, dead. No, that's not them. Nadab and Abihu. Thank you. Nadab and Abihu. He struck them dead as they lit an unholy fire before the Lord in the temple. God will be holy in our eyes. 
And while we live under the grace of Christ, and we're not being, aren't you glad God doesn't strike us dead for things that we do? Probably all of a sudden, if that, if that were true, if God just pulled back and said, okay, I'm, I'm taking you back to Old Testament times, all of a sudden, we'd see in the room, pow, 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 like popcorn would be going up. Because we've all sinned, right? After knowing Christ, we've all sinned. Thank God for grace. He is a God of grace. So this was an outward, external picture that, um, that Samuel had to deal with. The people had put their hope in the external. That's why they took the ark into battle. And yet God's calling them out of the external. And he's through Samuel trying to bring them back into an internal acknowledgement of who he is. Love him from your heart. That's an Old Testament teaching. That's not just New Testament. God demands to, that he, we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? Amen? And so we just need to be careful not to presume upon the, the holiness of God. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to enter into God's presence or worship in our service and come with a heart that is ready to worship holy God and to respect Him as, as holy. Amen. So, so, so here now we go back some 30, 40 years later or earlier, and we have the ark that is now at the house of Abinadab under the care of Eliezer, his son. And, uh, and then verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of, uh, out of, the, hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Now, that sounds as if He spoke, and the next minute they all repented and they got right. No, it probably took like 20 years. This was an ongoing thing that Samuel was doing, traveling around, going from city to city, proclaiming a message of repentance, return to the Lord, give up the idols and the worship. And so here, it's just giving you an overview. Verse 4, So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Now, we come here to a wonderful teaching moment in our text. Getting the ark back from the Philistines didn't automatically make Israel right with God. Returning the ark was not the real issue. The real issue was God seeing hearts of people return to Him more than the ark returned to them. And in our lives, sometimes we, we can easily be, be uh, deceived by Satan to where we end up in this religious experience with God, that we, we've taken a relationship and we've just, kind of, we've just kind of turned it into a religion. There's things that I do in my, as, I, as I walk with Christ, and we do it the same way, and sometimes we don't even think about it. It's just the way we are. This is what I do. This is how I worship. I always go to church. What do you mean? Somebody says, uh, you, you go to every service and you're like proudly going, of course. Um, is that guarantee that you're close to God? Not in any way, shape, or form. 
you can go to church faithfully and bust hell wide open. You can go to church faithfully and over a 40, 50, 60, 80 year period of time in a relationship with Jesus, never grow. You just got better at doing religion. And a lot of people need to think about that. And what God's after is not external hoop jumping. He's looking for hearts that have been completely surrendered to Him. The problem was that they had taken false gods, Baal and Ashtaroth. I don't believe that they had taken God out of the picture completely. That's not the way Satan works. It, he's deceptive. He's a deceiver. To take God completely out, you'd know, oh, that's, not God. that's wrong. No, what he does is he, just, he lets you keep God, just add other things with God. So the Ashtaroth, the Baals, that's what they would do. They would add these things in, these pagan, false, idol gods along with God. And by the, by the fact that you're mixing them, and this syncretistic kind of a, 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 a cocktail you've made of different gods, you have lost God. God's not going to be, look, hey, He's a jealous God, amen? There's only one true God, not, not five, not three, there's one. And so, so that's, that's where the problem was, that their national crisis was forcing them to turn back to God. But to turn back to God, they had to give up something. And th this is what I want to look at here, because Samuel is masterful in how he handles this matter with Israel. Understand, Samuel isn't just looking for individual change among, God's among the Israelites. He's looking for national wholesale repentance. <laughs> Samuel's wanting the whole nation to return to God. And so there's a couple things that we can learn about true repentance from this story. First of all, they had to repent inwardly. Look what it says in the text. It, verse 3, the latter part of the verse. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, that is always the beginning point for repentance. Now, when it says heart, that's not just speaking of a feeling that you have. It's actually speaking of your inner being and the part of you that initiates even your emotions in terms of its response to God is your mind. You can't feel something about God until you know something about God. Does it make sense? And the more you study the Word, the more you know about God, the more you can get excited about God. You can feel, you can allow emotions to, to join in what you know. Amen? And that's a good thing, too. It's okay every once in a while to give a shout to the Lord. In the middle of your day, you know, let out a shout. Go to Publix and you're shopping. And you have this incredible thought about God. Woo! They're going to think you're crazy. Hey, clap your hands, all you people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. So you're, what, what it is, though... Your emotions are catching up to your knowledge of God. And the fact that it's not just knowledge, it's a relationship. My emotions are getting excited because the God that I've come to know lives in me. Now that ought to pump you up, man. 
If that doesn't prime the pump, you need to dig a new well. That's just the bottom line. So this is what, this is so interesting. He starts them in this return to God with an inward inspection. Are you loving God with all of your heart? That's where it begins. So what that means is, if we play it out, practically speaking, does God have first place in your thought process? See, before you can return to God, you've got to also think about the sin that is hindering your return to God. If you're thinking about repentance, what's going to happen is you're going to start thinking differently. What I mean by that is, before you repent, you've got a certain way of living. You've got it in your mind and your, and your lifestyle. You, there's certain things you do and other things you don't do, and this is just who I am. And when people have lovingly confronted you with it, you say, well, this is the way my father was. Like that's an excuse not to let God change you. But then you start, then you start considering inwardly. You start considering how do I return to God? And you, God immediately, by the Holy Spirit, convicts you of your sin. He brings to mind your sinfulness. And as He brings the sinfulness to mind, it's not because He's going to condemn... If you're a Christian, He's not going to condemn you because you sin. He's already judged Jesus on the cross, so He's not going to condemn you for sinning. But what He is going to do, by the Holy Spirit, is remind you that those sins are hindering your relationship with God. Here you are a Christian in relationship with God, and you have full, total access to God every day. But because of the way you're living, because of the way you've been thinking, you're not walking with the Lord as you could. And He's reminding you of that. That's a good conviction. That's not a bad conviction. Amen? And so, so, so it starts in the mind. And then once you begin to think differently, I used to go this way, I don't want to do that anymore. That is hindering my walk with God. I've got to give that up. I've got to turn and go another direction. God, which direction should I go? Oh, this way? Okay, let's go. See, now all of a sudden what started in your heart goes to the second point. They had to repent inwardly. And there was an outward fruit of their inward repentance. Whenever someone truly repents of sin, there will always be a fruit of repentance that follows. Always. It's impossible to repent of sin and not change outwardly. It's impossible. Because, see, what starts as a change in your heart then begins to be careful. If, if truly I used to go this direction, and all of a sudden now I'm turning and going another direction following God, does that not, is that not obvious to see? If somebody's looking, knowing where you used to be, knowing where you're going. doesn't mean you're perfect. Again, this isn't a, a right-wrong theology here. You're going to mess up. even though you, You're still going to mess up, even though you've turned. But the difference is you used to have a bend towards flesh, towards you in that sin. Now, because you're thinking differently, your bend 
is no longer about you, it's towards God. And, and so even though you miss the mark along the way, you're still bending, you're still bending towards God. Amen? You see the difference? See, we've got to be careful as we talk about this because this is the Old Testament. This is before Christ. This was under the law. They were under the law. We're no longer under the law that way. Christ is the fulfillment. He took the law further. And we're living in that time. So we've got to be careful not to attach guilt, shame, and condemnation when a Christian falls short. What we do want to say, though, is it's very likely that when you continue to sin after knowing Christ, it does affect negatively your relationship with God. I do not believe you lose your salvation. I believe that you're not living your salvation. You're not getting the fruit of that salvation. Amen? Amen. And so hopefully this is making sense to you. Uh, the great, if you want to do your own home study, uh, go back to the story of the prodigal son and look at how the boy, he leaves home, and what was he thinking when he left home? What is he thinking? So, tell me. I'm going to go party. Why? Why was he thinking that? Okay, because all of a sudden he came into money. He knew he had an inheritance. And he saw the way his dad was living and thought, boring. I've got a better way. Dad, you don't realize it, but you're just an old fogey. You're holding me back. Let me live my life the way I want to live it. I've got a better plan. See, that's the way he's thinking. He's bent this way. And guess what's at the center of his bend? Self. Pride. Right? He goes off, sows his oats, loses everything. Ends up in a pig's pen feeding the pigs. And he hasn't eaten in days, and he's thinking, man, I'm going to eat some of this pig slop. And suddenly, inwardly, it says he came to his senses. He began to think differently. What, was he, what do you think that means? What was, how was that prodigal son thinking differently? Anybody? Give me a, throw something out. God spoke to him. Totally, that's true. But what was he thinking? If, he's th if he used to think this, and now all of a sudden God's speaking to him, and he's thinking differently. Yeah. He's now thinking, I said my dad was an old fogey. I'm just a young idiot. My dad's a lot smarter than I gave him credit for. Right? And so much so that I'm going to go home, and I, do, I, my, I don't even... I can't even imagine my dad letting me remain his son, but I'm going to go home and eat humble pie and tell him if he'll just let me live with his servants and eat their quarter of food, that's good enough for me. That's how much of a change the boy had on the inside. And so after he thought differently, what was the next thing he did? He took off for home, didn't he? He, went, he, he left with this bend. Now he's got a totally different picture. See, it started inwardly. Now, there's an outward manifestation of fruit of true repentance in that boy's life. That boy truly repented of his sin. That's what repentance does. You can talk all day long about how you sorry, you're sorry you did this, sorry you did that. But if there's not a change in the pattern of your life, if there's not a fruit of repentance that follows the godly sorrow that you're, that you're making a big... Look, it's a wonderful thing to have godly sorrow. 
you can't have repentance without it. That's on the front side of repentance. And that's in repentance, godly sorrow. But the Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And the fruit of repentance is the manifestation. Just like Israel, they had to give up the gods, the false gods. That was the clear indicator that they had returned to the Lord. They gave up the pagan worship. What is it that God might be asking you tonight to give up? Things that you've been doing. Look, we're, most of us here, if not all, we're Christians. And yet we can fall into patterns. We can fall into uh, just, a, you know, this is how I do God. This is how I do re- my, my, my relationship with God. And some of it's wonderful and some of it stinks to high heaven. And God's maybe convicting. And He's saying, turn. I need you to start thinking differently. Let the Old Testament Israelites be the ones who get you going in the right direction. Amen? Amen. So Samuel first called Israel to return with all their hearts. Then he told them to put away the foreign gods. So here's a spiritual leader who is giving them the instruction how to repent. And although the inward repentance goes first, no one can actually see what is happening in the heart of a man. So the outward repentance, signs of repentance, is where we see what took place in the heart. The inward work was proved by the outward fruit. Now, is it possible for somebody to fake the outward first without having it? Of course it is. Of course it is. But it won't last. If it's truly a heart change, it'll last. Okay? Uh, let's talk about these false gods for a moment. The gods of Baal and Ashtaroth were popular idols among the people of Israel. In fact, uh, actually, uh, they still to this day have plaques of these little figurines of these, these two gods, Ashtaroth and, and, and Baal, that are all over Palestine. So back in that day, that was the thing. In fact, this town that they're in is known for idol worship because of the influence of the people outside of God's people that came in. So, uh, the gods of Baal and Ashtaroth were popular. Baal was believed to be the son of Dagon. Remember we studied Dagon? Uh, Scott closed, closed that one down for us last week. And, of course, the Ark of the Covenant was in the same temple as Dagon. The, it was Dagon's temple. And the next morning, Dagon was laying face down before the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, God laid him on his face. And then the next, they set him back up. They propped their God back up. How, how ridiculous that is. Got to prop your God up. And then, of course, the next day they come in and his hands, his arms are gone. Uh, his head came off and he's just laying there on the ground. Okay? And so, so Dag, they walked in that morning and said, Daggone it. <laughs> I just had to put that in there. Okay. You knew it was coming, Deb, didn't you, at some point? You thought you survived, and I wouldn't do it, but I did. Okay. So, so, but they think that Baal was believed to be the son of Dagon, the god of grain. Ashtaroth, goddess of love and fertility, uh, she vied for supremacy uh, with Asherah, the mother goddess. The association of Baal and Asherah and Ashtaroth with fertility expresses the level of of depravity among the pagans surrounding Israel. And of course, that's why God said, drive them out of the land. 
because they'll rub off on you more than you'll rub off on them. Get them out of here. Of course, Israel, thinking they're smarter than God, turning and bending towards the other way, they said, no, we'll turn them into our servants. They'll serve us and we'll... No, that didn't work very well. They became the servants to the, to the pagans. Um, but they, they, they were caught up in sexual rituals, uh, these gods that the people worshipped, the pagans worshipped, and, uh, and they were, you'll find them, and you found them back in that day, in the Canaanite shrines that they would create. Uh, all of this, of course, is an abomination to the Lord. Now, verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. That is a very important passage. So here's the spiritual leader who is both prophet and judge over the people, and he is calling them to, to pray, and he says, I want you to gather up. We're going to go to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. That's what a priest does. He wasn't a priest, but he's interceding in behalf of the people. Mizpah is where Jacob separated from Laban. Remember that back in Genesis? Uh, he, so it's a place of separation. But it's something else too. It was also the gathering place for a repentant Israel in Judges chapter 20, verse 1. So it's a place that's remembered for separation and repentance. And, and that's where Samuel told them to come and meet with him at Mizpah. When it says that they prayed to the Lord for Israel, understand that he was... Look, that, that's not like Samuel started praying. He's already been praying. This is now the, the, the fruit of the many prayers that he has offered up to the Lord. Uh, he, he's, he's already called them the nation to repentance. Now they're doing something about it. When he saw that they were willing to give up the, the false gods, now he said, now let's pray. See, you can't really return to God if you don't pray. You've got to pray. And, and he knew that can only be completed through prayer. The experience of conviction over our sin doesn't accomplish anything. We have to respond to the conviction, and that's when we actually repent. And the best way to repent is to talk to God about it. If somebody's saying, well, how do I repent? Talk to God. Communicate with God. Confess your sin. Tell God that you've been going the wrong direction and that you're going to stop that immediately. That's how you turn. Verse 6, So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So this ceremonial pouring of water demonstrates that the souls of the men and women that were there, they were pouring their souls out before the Lord. It was an expression of emptiness and a desperate need for God, the water being poured out. A picture of emptiness and a desperate need for God. They spoke the words to the Lord, we have sinned against the Lord. That, and that's an outright, straightforward confession of sin. That's what God wants to hear from us, by the way. You, you know, look, Jesus is your mediator, right? He is your high priest, Hebrews tells us. And, and He's your advocate by the Holy Spirit. Christ is the one who's interceding for you. The Bible says that Satan pleads uh, before God day and night in opposition to you. So who's, who's giving God the other side? Christ, your mediator, going before God for you. And so He's your advocate. And an advocate is 
in our modern term, we would say attorney, right? Our counselor. Interestingly, in John 14, that's what Jesus called in the Greek uh, the Holy Spirit, the counselor, the advocate, your attorney, one who is called in to represent you. When you have sinned, you don't call up your attorney and say, hey, man, I'm just in a bind. I've got a problem here. I need you to fix it for me. Well, what did you do? And then you give him some tale that gets you out of the picture of being the problem and more like a victim. That's what a lot of us would do, but that's not what God wants. The mediator, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, died on the cross for your sins, paid the full price for your sins. He doesn't need to hear you give reasons and excuses for why you did what you did. He doesn't need you to justify your sinful actions. Well, Lord, if you, you, know, if you were raised the way I was under that father and mother, he doesn't need that. What, is it, what does the advocate need to represent you before God? He needs you to confess that you sinned. Now he's got something to work with. I don't know, last time I checked, the reason Jesus went to the cross was to set us free from what? Sin. And until you confess your sin, there's no way God can forgive you. You have to confess. You have to say, Christ, I'm guilty. I did it. And I'm very sorry. And I, I, I want to turn. I want to go the other direction. And that's all he needs to hear. And he takes your case before the Father in heaven. And while Satan is there, pleading his case against you that you're a sinner, and then God looks to Christ and says, what about, what about it? And he says, he's guilty. And Satan jumps on that and says, okay, you said the wages of sin is death. Put him to death. And Christ just sticks his hands out. And there's nail prints. And he said, Father, I took his sin on. I died. I fulfilled everything required of a sinner to be saved, to have a pardon from the innocent. I'm the innocent one. And Satan has to sit down and shut up. He can't touch that. But until you confess your sin, Christ can't represent you. So this is important for us to understand. He brings them to Mizpah. They pour out water, which is a beautiful picture. It's a picture of hearts that have been completely surrendered to God, caught in their sin, giving up their sin. We are now desperate before we need God. There's no other answer for us. We need God. What a beautiful ceremony they had. They poured out their hearts like water in a penance before the Lord. They expressed the same heart that we find in Lamentations in chapter 2, verse 19. Write that down. Lamentations 2.19. It says, Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to Him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Same, same picture. It says that Israel also expressed their sorrow over their sin by fasting, which is a clear message that nothing else really matters except getting right with God. We're not even going to feed ourselves. We're not even going to let the body have what it needs until we get right with God. Some of us pride ourselves 
for being the kinds of people that will pay our bills before we'll even eat food. We're going to make sure we pay our bills on time. Israel, in this state that they were in, in this condition, they have no pride. They're saying there's no answer for us other than you, and we won't even eat until we get this right with you, God. They spoke the words to the Lord, we have sinned against the Lord. A clear, straightforward confession, a personal claim of guilt and responsibility. Confession is vital to maintain relationship with God. Turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John, Old Te or New Testament. 1 John chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 5. That would be a tough one, wouldn't it? 1 John chapter 1, pick it up with me at verse 5. Six verses here, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. We're going to look at them. They re now listen, now we're in the New Testament. Now we've got John giving instruction to who? Lost people? No, no, believers. Now John's talking to Christians, you and I. This is after Christ died on the cross. And he says in 1 John 1, 5-10, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Woo! Can you imagine what it's going to be like when God shines the light on the darkness in this world once and for all and takes Satan and sends him to the lake of fire? Wow! i got to tell you, by the way, Larry Flint died Larry Flint. Remember Larry? That name sound familiar? Back in the 70s? He used to battle against, uh, against uh, what's his name? Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell, the moral majority. And they went to battle many times. He made fun of Jerry Falwell. And, of course, he's the magnet for pornography, one of them, and has built his whole life on pornography. I think he was, they said when he died, he was worth like $14 million dollars. And he, he had an, uh, somebody shot him, I don't know, about 20 years ago, 15 years ago, and it paralyzed him. He had to be in a wheelchair the rest of his life. He, he, he gave himself a gold-plated wheelchair. And the guy cussed like a worse than a sailor. Anywhere he went, didn't matter who was around, he was just a venomous, vicious, just a, oh, well, he just died. God just shined the light on Larry Flint. Unless he repented, God just shined the light. That man, while he walked in the darkness and was proud of it, now, whoo, he knows the truth. Remember what the Scripture says? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You want to do that bowing and confessing, before you die. Because if you wait until after you die, you will bow, you will confess, but it's not because you're saved. It's because the light just came on. And it's too late. It's too late. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have. We've heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what is that saying? It doesn't say you're perfect, that you never walk in anything that has a shadow to it, that you're always in the light. It's saying that your bend of your heart is to the light. You're given to the light, not darkness. You, you don't want darkness to be the pattern of your life any longer. Before it was, now it isn't. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. See, there he's just telling you. You know, I came up in a holiness movement as a boy, and they didn't know any better. This is what they were taught. I was taught. I believed it for a long time. I believed that you could attain a second work of grace, and when you get to the second work of grace, you stop sinning. In this life, you wouldn't sin anymore. And, and the reason I thought that was because I had people tell me they had attained it. Some of these old folks were telling me that they, they don't sin no more. I used to look at them, I thought they were saints. Which the Bible says we're all saints, but back then I'm thinking of them as like a saint in the Catholic Church. They ought to be, they ought to be a statue when they die. Because they stopped sinning. <laughs> and, but here's what really happened. When you build something on a, on, a, on a doctrine that has error in it, then the outcome is going to bring something less than righteous. And the outcome for them was, some, they, they just learned to lie really well. <laughs> and didn't know, they, 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 what they did, they changed the definition for sin. Because they were sinning. So they changed, there's certain things, oh, that's not sin. See, that's the only way you can live above sin. That and find an apartment over top of a bar somewhere. Then you can live above sin. But, but otherwise, that's the only way to do it, okay? And <laughs> he's saying right here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So He's not asking you to, to lie and say you don't sin. That's a religious show. He doesn't want you to do it. You're in relationship. He knows you're going to sin. That's why He sent grace. He gives you grace. Amen? Aren't you thankful for grace? <laughs> every day I need God's grace. After I'm saved, I need God's grace every day. And I walk in it every day, and I thank God for it every day. But He wants to forgive us, and He has forgiven us. Now, when it speaks of confession here, again, He's not saying confess so that you can be saved. You're already saved. That's not in jeopardy. He's saying your sins are hindering our relationship. Confess that. Get right with me. I want you to have the abundant Christian life, not just the Christian life, right? That's what Jesus said, right? That He gives life and He gives it what? Yeah. And so that's what He's talking about there. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Wow! So you better get, out, get off that train where somehow you're above sin. Uh, 
it's amazing how, especially with our spouses, I don't know about you, it's just true in my, in my home. I can confess to Scott Walker, I can confess to Bill McClellan, I can confess to the whole congregation how I've fallen short in something and I've sinned and I need your forgiveness. But dadgummit, it's hard to say that to my wife. <laughs> because she's already expecting me that she knows the truth. She just wants to hear it. <laughs> Let's just get honest about it. It's hard. It's necessary. It's necessary that we confess our sin to God, that we communicate our confession. God's doing a work in me right now on that point. See, that's what you, you ought to be saying. Honey, I'm, I'm sorry. And God's helping me in that area. And as a spouse, we don't, and male or female, those of us who can, don't need to hear, well, I could have told you. <laughs> well, it's about time. Oh, man. Okay, now you've sinned. <laughs> now you've got to confess. Okay. There are some who believe that God no longer convicts a Christian, and this passage proves otherwise. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. Sin was paid for on the cross, therefore we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. However, we still fall short, we still sin, and our sins can hinder our relationship with God after receiving Christ as our Savior. If it's meant from the heart, it's hard to make a better statement of confession than we have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against God. That's all he needs to hear. This is what David said when he was confronted with his sin with Bathsheba. He said, I've sinned against the Lord. Good job, David. That's exactly what you needed to say. That's exactly what we need to say. Being the last of the judge, judges gave Samuel the position to judge over Israel, but his leadership was more spiritual, looking at the inner heart of man, than it was uh, military. If you look at all the judges, he's the last one. They all dealt in military things. Samuel really didn't. He went after the heart, because that's where the real battle is won. Verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. All right, let's think about this. When the Philistines looked at a humble and repentant Israel, these people were crying, weeping before God, pouring out water. They were in a total place of weakness, vulnerability, and frailty. And, and the Philistines said, now, let's attack now. Uh, if they knew what was coming, what they should have said was, this is the last time when we ought to attack. Because if they are returning to God, that means God's going to represent them. But Philistines aren't real smart. They're pagan. And so they took on Israel while they repented. Remember anybody ever saying this to you? In your weakness, he is strong. Under Samuel's leadership, he was not a military commander. He didn't lead the armies of God into battle against the Philistines or the Ammonites. He was a spiritual leader who helped lead them back to God. 
And the closer they got to God, listen, the more they were frail and weak in themselves. That's the only way you can turn to God, is if you recognize your, your limitations and you trust in God. But the opposite is true. The closer you get to God, the more frail you are, the more strong God is in your life. What does it say in uh, 2 Chronicles? It says that, uh, I think it's 16.9, that uh, I'm trying to think the guy's name was talking about there. But he, he had come down with a foot disease. He had turned away from the Lord, and he never would come back to the Lord. He also, before that, had gone off on his own as a diplomat and made an alliance with the enemy against the northern kingdom. And he thought he, or against the southern kingdom. And he thought he was so smart. And the Lord sent word to him through the man of God and said, uh, you thought that you were so smart that you went after, out and fixed your own problem, but you've forgotten that your ally now is the enemy of God. And that enemy is going to now take you because you made an alliance. God's going to make it so that He takes you. And the Scripture is very clear there that the eyes of the Lord seek to and fro throughout the earth to strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. God is seeking all over the earth for people who are dependent upon Him. And He meets them at their point of need. He becomes their strength. But the rest of us who think we've got it together and we're going to make it happen and I can do this myself... We go out and because we don't trust God with our problem, we walk by sight and not faith, eventually it's going to catch up to you. And you say, well, what about these people that did that their whole life? They became billionaires. Well, you don't really get to see the other side of the story, the Paul Harvey part. What it looks like when those billionaires stand before God and give account of their lives. They will find out in the end it was a big mistake. Only those who come to a point of complete surrender and trust the Lord will be saved. So, two things can happen to us when we take our eyes off the Lord. One is we can be overly confident. And that's what happened to Israel in the first battle. They lost the battle against the Philistines. They went back and said, get the, get the ark, let's bring the ark with us. See, they put their confidence in the ark of God, not in the God of the ark. They didn't even have a relationship with the God of the ark, but they just thought the ark was everything. And of course, they lost that battle big time. Now, they're going up against the Philistines and they know the God of the ark. <laughs> it's a whole different picture now. The question is, who is your confidence in? Well, honestly, when it all boils down, what's the irreducible minimum? Is it your bank account? Is it your retirement fund? Is it your title? Is it your prestige? Is it, what is it? What, what, is, what is your confidence in? The only thing it should be in is the Lord your God. In the end, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. 
And the people of Israel, verse 8, said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that He may save us from the land of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord Himself answered. That is a wonderful passage because they are about to go to battle against the Philistines. And by the way, the Philistines always had the upper hand because the Philistines came from the, just off the coast of Greece and they had the influence of the Grecian uh, military uh, arsenal. Israel had nothing. The, 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 the Philistines used iron. They knew how to, to, to work with iron to make their, their tools and also their weaponry. Israel had nothing. And so Israel's now going, again, it's a great picture. Israel has nothing. I mean, they have, and now spiritually they have nothing. They're nothing without God. And the Philistines are thinking, we can get them now. We got them. We got them. And, and here we see that right as the battle's about to begin, Samuel does what? He offers a sacrifice to God. What a great way to go in the battle, making a sacrifice to God. The last time Israel was in this kind of situation, it didn't work. Now they're in a different place. It's interesting that in this critical moment, we can actually see the result of prayer. And now after praying, after repenting, after turning, now they want to give back to God. And, and Samuel represents them and does just this. I want to take a moment and, and I want you to think about that poor little suckling lamb that Samuel chose to make sacrifice with before God. That little suckling lamb, it hadn't even gotten off of its mother's milk. And that's the one that Samuel chose. A little lamb who had never done anything wrong, a, a lamb that was absolutely pure in every sense of the word. And that is the one that Samuel chose to offer up to the Lord in a sacrifice, which if you understand that, what Israel and what Samuel knew and what they were saying to God by that sacrifice was that little lamb should be us. It should be us. We're guilty. But we're gonna, you said take a perfect lamb, take an unblemished lamb and let that lamb represent you, which is a type of Christ. It's a picture of Christ. You Look, the innocent has to die for the guilty. That's what a pardon is. A guilty person can't pardon another guilty person. The innocent pardons. And the Bible says that the soul that sins shall die. The father cannot suffer for the sins of the son, neither can the son suffer for the sins of the father. Every sin's upon you. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. There's no getting out from under your sin debt without bloodshed. The Bible from the front cover to the back is a very bloody book. And, and here is another picture of that. Blood, before the battle even started, before the blood was shed on the battlefield, because they wanted God to go before them, they needed to make a sacrifice. They needed to be cleansed. And so this innocent little lamb took on the sins of the people before God. And God received that sacrifice. God received it. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus has gone before us. He has made the atonement for our sins. Isn't that wonderful? So that we, every day, can walk in the confidence of God as we do battle against the spiritual forces of wickedness in this place. Isn't that wonderful? And the Lord says, the last part of verse 9, the Lord answered him. God received that sacrifice. Now remember, the battle has not happened yet. And the battle is already over. They haven't even gone out to fight the Philistines. And the Lord answered him. The battle's done. It doesn't matter what the Philistines bring in the, onto the battlefield. It doesn't matter how many. It doesn't matter whatever, whoever, whatever. Uh, God has already won the battle. And what, how does he win this battle? Very interesting. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Israel didn't even fight the battle. God went before them. Why? Because they completely surrendered. They were trusting in Him. They had no other hope. And God said, good, that's where I need you to be. Now let, I'll stand by and watch what I do. And he, he, he performed a miracle. Here's why it's a miracle. Because it says that when God sounded the thunder, the Philistines became confused. Israel heard the same thunder. Why didn't they become confused? Because it was a work of God. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. They just went out and routed them. So God fought from heaven on behalf of Israel and defeated the Philistines. This was a supernatural work of God. This was the kind of victory Israel had hoped for in chapter 4 when they brought the ark, but they couldn't get the victory because they were all about themselves. Now they are all about God, and God delivers them from the hands of the enemy, and it gets even better. Verse 12, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. In other words, I don't know about tomorrow if we're going to trust God, but if we'll trust God, He'll always help us. But all I can tell you is today and up to this point, God has been faithful. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Wow. Never had to raise a sword. Never had to go and set up a military strategy. The last of the judges never had to do battle against the enemy. He was a spiritual leader, dealt with the hearts of Israel. And because of that, it says that the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of, the, of, of Samuel. The, the cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were now restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. Praise the Lord. That's what our God can do when we just take our hands off of it and surrender to Him. I don't know what you're facing in your life and what trial, what test might be coming your way right now, but let this be your, let this be your guide tonight. Let the Word of God speak into your life. Surrender it to God. Confess your sin. Get right with Him so that God goes before you and represents you. Amen?
hey, listen, by the way, it could get a lot worse before it gets better. That's okay. You belong to the Lord. Verse 14, and there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And so Samuel was successful not only as a man of war, but also as a man of peace. Verse 15, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Uh, some judges ended their ministry early, and they ended it in disgrace. But Samuel, was he finished strong in the Lord as a leader of God. Isn't that beautiful? And then the last uh, thing, verse 16 and 17, And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. So he would travel the circuit, so to speak, and hold court, judging Israel in these locations. He worked hard. This man worked hard all the way to the end of his life. He would go all over Israel, help settling disputes and promoting righteousness. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. We know that he was a faithful man of God because he set up an altar right there in his hometown to always put God first in his life, and then he went out every day and proved it. The fruit of his own repentance brought just blessings all over Israel during his whole time as their spiritual leader. Isn't that beautiful? Wow, what a great man of God. What a great name, Samuel. We need more Samuels today. Amen. Father, thank you tonight. Thank you for your love and thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your steadfast love, especially that phrase is used throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. You are a God who provides steadfast love. Your love never changes. That's what the Scripture says, that your love is the same always. And we're thankful for that. And yet, Lord, we fall short and we're thankful that your grace covers our sinfulness. And, and if we'll stay humble before you and stay broken before you, and just as Jesus taught in the, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. Oh God, may we always have a poor in spirit heart that I'm nothing apart from the work of Christ in my life. So thank you, Lord, and may, may this just challenge us, may it encourage us as we face our trials in our day that we can trust the Word of God still works. And in your name we pray. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. God bless you.